Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. Um, hi, I'm Azrea Key, and my new book, Joie, A Parisian's Guide to Celebrating the Good Life, is out now. The opening sentence of your book really had an impact on me. Could you please read it? It starts with, there's life, and then there's the good life. There's life, and then there's the good life. I first traveled to Paris from New York for a single day as an undergrad, and then again for a few months as a graduate student of the decorative arts. Those initial introductions opened my eyes to how Parisians lived so differently from me. But it was not until I returned for love, moving here permanently with my Swiss husband, and eventually became a mom to two very Parisian kids that I took a closer look at the culture. I noticed the driving force behind the way the French live their lives. It's joie de vivre, the joy of living. I would love for you to chat a little bit about how you found your joie de vivre in Paris. You know, when I moved here, I just really observed how differently people were living their lives. You know, I was sort of like career obsessed. I was like, how was I going to advance in my career and my life? And people were just living at a different pace. Like there were different things that were important to them. And I think for me, as I sort of, you don't want to, if you're living in a culture and a society, like, you know, you can only go against the, the, the flow for so long before you realize that, you know, People are still working and still, you know, you know, doing the grind, but they're enjoying life in a different way. And I sort of started to slowly adapt to the way that life was here. And it was, I think it was like a couple years in when I went back to New York and I realized how different I was that I was like, oh, okay, there's, you know, I've, I've adapted to a different way of life here. And so I started, I started to kind of take note of what that was and, and do more of it. In the book, you talk about how Parisians find joy in what they eat, where they go, conversations they have, and how they spend their time. It's the simple things. And it feels like the polar opposite of the mindset here in the United States, where it's more, 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 and busy, busy, busy. Yes, absolutely. And as I started to see that, you know, people during the day would just sit at a cafe. And it was just, it was just such a simple thing, just sitting at a cafe to, like, have a cafe or have a drink, um, meeting with a friend, um, you know, having lunch is such a big thing, you know, like actually stepping away from your desk and taking a break and having lunch um, is such a tiny thing, but actually it does bring you joy as opposed to like hunched over your computer for a bazillion hours, you know, of the day. I, I sort of adapted to all these little things and I started to, you know, as, as I started to take stock in writing this book, realizing how they really are just a, a, a culmination of tiny, simple changes in life. So there are chats interspersed throughout the book, and one I particularly like is your chat with Vanessa Grawl, founder of Messy Nessie Chic. I am an avid follower of her Instagram page, and in the interview, she says one of her rules is to always look up. As a Kansan living in New York City, I do that all the time. After more than 20 years in the city, I'm still constantly seeing it through the eyes of a tourist, which my son reminds me of, and it brings me so much joy. So that leads me to the term flaneur, which I learned about in the book. Enlighten me on the fine French art of flannery. The term comes from this like 18th, 19th century 
person who would just wander around the city and take in the sights. And, you know, they were taking observations of who was passing by, what was happening. And I think that there's something really special about doing that. And as cafe life is really big in Paris, you know, just sitting at a cafe or wandering around a park or a neighborhood, or, you know, as you said, like, just looking up, like, you know, where you are and look and observing people in spaces and buildings, you know, um, you can do that on vacation. You can do that in your city. And I think you'll be surprised at like, just if you go into it with that sort of attitude, like what that does for your creativity and your spirit and your soul, like that is joie also. That is joie de vivre. And you can even do that heading to your therapist or or doctor's Absolutely. office. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I say in the book, you know, like going to my therapist, I love like, you know, one day I just walked out. I probably just like sped walk out of there. And this time I kind of like stopped and looked down and there were these beautiful like Art Nouveau tiles. And I was just kind of like, wow, this building is fabulous. So fascinating. So um, you can do it anywhere. And it's just like that little jolt I got from just sort of like observing the beautiful details of her building. Like it was kind of, I don't know, then I added a pep in my step when I walked out of there. (laughs) So what's your favorite neighborhood to stroll in in Paris and why? Um, I have to say Montmartre. I love it. I love being there. I love, first of all, the history is just beautiful, you know, of that neighborhood, all the different artists and thought leaders who were living in that neighborhood. But also, it's such a great place to be a flanner. You can just really get lost. All these little like winding, windy streets and um, you know, sometimes you like turn a corner and you're like, wow, this is actually like an entire house and not just an apartment building and the cafes and you like turn another corner, it's a square. And the next thing you know, you're at the top and looking down upon um, the neighborhood. It's really my absolute favorite neighborhood to just get lost in. And it's so romantic. That sounds exactly like Greenwich Village where I live. It's windy. Yes. It's old. Charming. Yes. yes. Like, I like these neighborhoods that have sort of, like, kept the history and the charm um, of the space. Like, something I learned through my studies was this respect to the past, the respect to history, you know, while also adding, you know, modern touches. And I think you see that, you know, where the architecture is just there, or the buildings are there. And then, you know, the modern touches are just the people and the new cafes that come in. Speaking of the past, when you were young, growing up in Austin, Texas, was it a dream of yours to move to France? To be honest, not really. At that time, I was dreaming about moving to New York City. And I don't think I really understood that Paris was a place that was accessible to me that I could live. You know, it just seemed so far away, another ocean way. Like, how was I going to live or how that, you know, I think I loved it. And I was definitely like in love with Paris. I just didn't see that it was something that I could do that was accessible to me. So I think it wasn't until my 20s when I moved to New York and I wouldn't say I'd conquered New York, but I was like, okay, I, wow, I moved to New York and I'm living in this amazing city by myself. And I'm like, okay, I can do, I can do the next step. I can go across the ocean and live in another place. So, yeah. Really, there's nothing I love more than a beautiful coupe. You say many champagne enthusiasts prefer the flute because it supposedly maintains the bubbles longer, but you prefer to enjoy champagne in a coupe. Talk a little bit about the design and beauty of it. Yes, you know, I recently wrote an article for WSJ about how I fell in love with the coupes. And, you know, my first sort of introduction was a neighbor here who you know, she opened this cabinet and she had all all these different champagne coupes. And I was just like, oh, wait, but I thought we're not supposed to drink champagne from coupes. And when you hold a coupe, you know, the way that you 
you hold the bowl with your hand is very glamorous and dramatic to me. It makes me think of like Hollywood glam and like I'm in some F. Scott Fitzgerald story. You know, and I when I was writing that article, people were so right. Like two things that kind of came up was like, I'm not drinking this for the bubbles. I'm not trying to stare at the bubbles. I, I want to taste the bubbles, but you know, I'm not going to be drinking it long enough to be like staring at the bubbles. So I don't care about like the the losing of the bubbles. I care about like the beauty of this, like the shape, you know, the round shape of a coupe. And also, you know, someone pointed out and I, wow, I never thought about it. Serving champagne in coupes allows you to be like more attentive to your guest and to yourself because, you know, it is shorter pour than a flute. And so you have to sort of like be attentive to your guests because you have to pour, fill their glass a little bit more often, um, which I think is kind of nice. But I just love collecting all the different shapes of coupes etched, beveled, um, you know, little like jewel bulbous stems. You can just fall down a rabbit hole. And now I have a big sideboard, absolutely chock full of different coupes and I'm constantly collecting them. Another tidbit I learned from you is linen is the only textile original to Europe. In the early days of you living in France, most of the Parisian dinner parties you were invited to featured tables set with linens. So then you learned all about linen and created your own line for your shop, Madame de la Maison. I'd love to hear about that. Yes, I think this obviously could be a different story for different people, but like I did not sit at the table with linens when I was growing up. And so when I came here and I started to see like people have tablecloths, napkins, I started to realize like how that really elevates a moment. The linens laid out, the the napkins are there. A simple lunch, a simple tea just feels very special. And I like that. You know, when I started to sort of research like what, you know, I wanted to make linens and what material I was going to use, I was introduced to 100% flaxy linen and learning the importance of that to Europe and how Europe protects it and how sustainable it is because it's used from tip to tail flaxseed oil flaxseed it's it's like wine you know like a, a good year is good linen depending on the rain so I really fell in love with the material and you know started developing my own collection and learning more and more and now I just I mean I love using linen it's like why use a bunch of paper towels when you can have different color linens and pull them out and you know have your cupboard and mix and match how you want to, depending on your, you know, what you're setting or what the occasion is. I can't tell you how much I've learned from you. You say the wrinkle factor adds some texture to the table, which is such a relief. You know, when you go back to the fact that something I learned from my life here is that the emphasis of gathering really should be on the people and the moment that you're creating. So that's one. And two, you know, when when you see like linen that has a little crinkle to it, I feel like that texture is really charming. It adds another layer as opposed to like, you know, this is a very personal thing. You know, even a white with a crinkle just for me is a style thing. I think it's charming. So I don't mind a little crinkle. I mean, I have tips to smooth it out, to care for them, but nobody's remembering that your edges were like perfectly anything. They're remembering like how you made them feel in that moment. So you tell us to use the good china. I really, really adore that. In the 80s, TV was your mechanism for learning how to become more, quote, American, according to the television networks. I love this line in the book. 
I appreciated the beautifully orchestrated chaos of different arms reaching across the pretty china strewn about a lovely tablecloth. I wanted to mimic the adults who clink silver cutlery to a crystal glass before making an announcement. And I remained fascinated by the ritual of slapping a fabric napkin on the table and storming off as a means of declaring drama. So how was your household different from what we were all seeing on TV at the time? Well, we didn't have that, like, we didn't have that formality of, or that, you know, of coming to the table, formal or informal. You know, I think Nigerian culture, you know, we're not raised like that. There's a lot of food, there's a lot of getting together, a lot of gathering at the table, but you know, that sort of like setting the table, which is why my mother was not definitely, you know, aided to her not wanting to use her good china. You know, we were eating off Tupperware and there was, you know, the pot was on the stove and you just made your plate and went to go sit. And, you know, half of the time somebody, we were sitting at the TV watching a show. So, you know, I know that maybe, you know, a lot of American culture might have also been more like my family, you know, when you have the TV trays and all that kind of stuff that's going on. But um, you know, producers were sort of using this table moment, you know, for TV tricks. But for me, it was something that I was like, ah, oh, everyone's coming together and like sitting at the table. And I wanted that. I wanted to sit with my mom and my dad at the table and my brothers and to talk about our days and, you know, to have our plates and our forks and everything set. So we didn't have that. We just, you know, everybody went to their different spaces. And I think a lot of American culture is a little bit like that, um, which is something I love about the French culture, like just why it was, you know, given a uh, UNESCO award in 2010, because it is something so special to sit at the table with your family. So you just mentioned um, how your mom wanted to use the Tupperware, and she was always waiting for a special occasion to pull out the good china. Talk a little bit about the emotional interpretation between you and your mother when it comes to good china. This china that she was given for her wedding, it was so special to her. I never understood why she didn't want to use it. You know, I was like, if it's so special, like it brings you joy, why should you not be using it? It was a different time, and they didn't have a lot of what they considered fancy special things. And so maybe they wanted to preserve it. But I think for me, I was so disturbed and I couldn't really understand that if something was so special and brought her joy, like why, why would she not use it? Why could we not use it? It marked me in a way that, that maybe I couldn't interpret at the time, but just to say like, well, when I have nice stuff, I'm going to use it. I'm going to like enjoy using it. It just stayed with me like in such a deep, profound way. And, you know, that's how I am now. Like with my kids, we're not using a bunch of Tupperware. We're using just plates. That's how they grow up because they're not being taught that that they don't deserve or are not allowed to use nice things. I love that you collect uh, stray coffee and tea saucers to use as plates under soft boiled eggs or like as a sauce dish or for sushi or yeah. pot stickers. I think that's so clever and beautiful. Yes. I, another thing also when you when you buy antiques, you know, in the 19th century when a lot of like the pro, a proliferation of these objects, you know, sort of like hit the market because of what was happening in table design. I think that you have a lot of objects that people just like in their mind they think are just for that specific thing um but you can use them for so many other things i mean it's not just like 
with these plates, I also realized like you can always find like little salt cellars, you know, the little they're connected. And you can use those also. Like if you're serving a meal and you want like your soy sauce and your hot sauce or like there's so many clever ways that you can find things in a flea market or just in your home and find multiple uses for them. So I try to highlight that and we don't have to just use one thing for for one purpose. On page 188, you give us 10 tips for antique shopping. You get a thrill from hunting. But for a lot of us, it's an intimidating task. I would love for you to chat about the 10 helpful tips. You know, the first one is definitely like use your imagination, you know, which is what we you know, we talked about earlier. If you see a, a random little tea saucer there and it's missing its coffee cup or teacup, oh, well, you know what? You can use that for something else. You could use it under a plant also. You can use it under, just because you love the pattern, you can, you know, put a, a pretty plant on it. Um, so use your imagination. Number two, find perfection in the imperfect, which also kind of goes back to number one a little bit. Things that are not a complete set or some patina on silver adds charm and a story. You find some beautiful chairs. Don't forget, you can clean the wood, polish the wood, reupholster. You know, there's so many beautiful objects out there and you can give them a second life. So don't walk away from things that are a little imperfect. Number three, don't be afraid to ask for a better price because as a dealer and as someone who talks to dealers a lot, they have created prices knowing that someone's going to ask them to reduce that price. So don't feel bad about it. Don't go crazy with your reduction of something selling for 100 don't ask for 50 don't be afraid to ask for a little reduction in the price and in french we always say that or you know petit prix is the term you need to learn if you're in france which is cute because it's just says a little price oh that is um, cute it is right so number four don't let an item be the one that got away um and i say this because there's times when you see something unless you're like me and you go to the flea market literally every weekend you might not know the value of something. So you have to decide, is it the price you're willing to pay? So you see a beautiful lamp and you're like, oh my God, that lamp looks amazing. It's $500. Oh, I don't want to pay that. But you know what? If you really want that lamp and it's a really special lamp by, you know, a designer or like you like the style, you know, bargain for the price and don't walk away because you're thinking you're being cheated. You're not being cheated. (laughs) You choose the price that, you know, you're willing to pay. I've, I've paid a certain price for something and something in my house that I still am excited to look at every single day. Don't let an item be the one that got away. Number five, skip some stands, but dig deep into others. You don't need to go to every single stand. I wander and I walk a little bit. Some stands just sort of like pull me in because I like the display. I like the way it looks. Some stands look a little junky, but for me, I know that's where I might dig and find a really cute, fun bargain. So, you know, you just don't need to go to all of them. Number six would be to trust your gut. Um, If something looks too shiny and too new, then it might not really be antique. If something is covered in dust and dirt, like that's that's probably a sign that it's been living in someone's like old house or old chateau or old attic, you know, just waiting for you to take it and clean it off. But just trust your gut if you feel like something seems a little off to you. Um, And number seven would be to educate yourself. Go online, takes 10 minutes of online reading to kind of figure out the difference between porcelain or stoneware, learning about the different design styles. For me, I collect art books. I go to museums. I go to chateaus. I I learn. So for me, 
you know, I studied the decorative arts. So when I came to do this, it was 10 times more fun because I see something and I'm like, oh, that shell, it's definitely Rococo, you know, you know, Rococo shells or number eight, the early bird gets the good antiques, but the late bird gets better prices. If you get up really early, you get things before they're sold out. But when you go at the end, sometimes people are just, you know, they don't want to pack up, pack everything up. So they're happy to give you probably a a better price than they would have given you had you showed up at 9am. Number nine, be prepared and dress comfy. So have cash because some people don't take you know most people that are out depending on where the flea market is might not be taking credit cards so have cash and depending on where your flea market is wear comfy shoes you know we're not you don't need to be out there in high heels or you know shoes that are like wheezing your toes just be comfortable enjoy yourself walk around and number 10 get to know your dealers you know my dealers would text me all the time oh i found these coops do you want them or i found this thing you can tell them what you're looking for um sometimes you know, even if you're not regular and you're just chatting them up, like they appreciate someone getting to know them and they might say, actually, you know what? I have this in my trunk. They put out a display, but not everything they have is out there. You know, same as me, you know, you go on my website, I have a bunch of things, but it's not all there. You know, there's a lot of things in the the closets at home that I just haven't had time to put up on the site. So I, I, I enjoy when people ask me or tell me what they're looking for as well. So yeah, that's number 10. Get to know your dealers. You say you must have lived in a chateau in a previous life. So what is your current favorite chateau? I would say it's a good tie between Chateau Chenonceau and Chateau Chambord in the Loire Valley. The Loire is just full of chateaus and I love them all. Um, But those two are my favorite. Uh, I love in Chambord, you have the double helix stairway. um, I love that. I know there's only two in in existence and it's so lovely you know it's like this double the double stairway where you know a mistress could be going down one while a a, a wife or a queen was going up another so like <laughs> the two never cross so I love that just like really romantic and I love all the gardens so those two are my absolute favorite and then the towns have really great restaurants um, around to eat where can we find you on the web and social media so you can find me on um, Instagram at Madame de la Maison, which is the same as my TikTok. Pretty new to it, but it's there. Madame de la Maison. And you can find me on my personal account, which is just Azri Aki, my first and last name. Uh, that account is more, you know, just my wanderings and my travels and my family life. So there's a oh, but you can also go to the shop, MadameDelamaison.com, and where I sell antiques and linens and some new products, candles and cocktail napkins. One of my most favorite takeaways from Joie is where you wrote, a quick pop into a park or a stroll down a tree-lined street will not only boost your energy level and creativity, but also help slow your heart rate, lower stress, and bring you a moment of joy. I am thrilled you could join me today on Decorating by the Book podcast. Merci. Thank you for having me, Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.